Um, so today I'm continuing our teaching series on the book of Ephesians, and our series is called God's Great Plan. And last week, Andy uh, kicked off the series by looking at chapter 1, and I'm going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, focusing on what it means to be alive. So here's a question to kick us off with. What makes you feel alive? What makes you feel and come alive? One passion of mine is Wales, and I don't mean the country. I mean Wales. I love them. I love them. They're an absolute marvel to me. I'll look at, just look at pictures of them on the internet. <laughs> and I, I began to be troubled by the fact that I'd never actually seen a whale. And it was a bit of a dilemma. Those of you who are kind of biologists or, you know, really care about the environment will know that if you, if you go and see a whale, you actively probably harm the whale in the act of using petrol to get to them. Um, so I was, you know, troubled. And then we had this opportunity. Uh, Chris, uh, just before he proposed to me, pulled out all the stops. We went to the country, Wales. Um, to St. David's, and we went on a marine conservation expedition on a boat, so it kind of felt like it was all right, you know, <laughs> yeah? Um, and after a few hours, we'd seen, at first, we saw some dolphins, and I thought, great, dolphins, and after a while, I was like, oh, so many dolphins. <laughs> and then, we got this tiny glimpse in the distance of this little minky whale, there you go. <laughs> And I wept. I was like, it's like sad and happy tears. And second to this, one of the other moments that made me feel most alive was when we revisited the same place four years later. And we didn't go on a boat. We were just standing on the, on the beach um, just before the sunset. It was all very romantic. Um, and we just saw just all of a sudden, this pod of whales on the horizon. And there were, you know, you know there blow holes. We could see them. They were really far away. And we just stood there transfixed. We watched for, you know, a few hours just as they played about on the horizon. And it honestly felt like a show that God had put on just for us. And I, you know, I feel, oh, I feel emotional about it. Alive is the word I'd choose to describe it. You know, this kind of keenness, this awareness, this joy and gratitude. And my life doesn't have nearly enough of those moments in it. And I, it's good to remember that living life to the full is something that God always intended for us. And so it was with the Ephesians. The Ephesians were good faithful Christians. Paul didn't write this letter in order to communicate some big moral failing that they had. He was proud of them. It says in chapter one, he called them the faithful in Christ Jesus. But we gather from what Paul writes that they weren't without their challenges. And actually the first half, so chapters one to three, the first half of Ephesians, Paul's focus is trying to remind them what their life is supposed to be who they're supposed to be, and how significant they are. And then the second half of Ephesians really focuses on, therefore, in the light of that, how should you live? And we'll come on to that later in the series. But today, evidently, they needed reminding of that. 
They needed reminding of who they were. I think we need reminding of that too sometimes. And they were also clearly tempted to live according to the culture, their surrounding culture. And they were kind of at risk at losing their distinctive Christian identity. But our passage, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10, appears in the first half of the letter. It focuses on who they are, who they're meant to be, what life is supposed to be like. So let's read it together now. If you've got Bibles... Do turn to them or use your phone or whatever, but don't worry, I will put it on the screen as well. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage effectively describes the gospel. And it's, it's this that Paul wants to remind the Ephesians of. Why? They're good, faithful Christians. They know this already. This is information they have already heard and changed their lives because of. I think the key to this is in chapter 1. And Paul prays a prayer for the Ephesians. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Sometimes things we know lose their power. They become so familiar that they almost seem like bedtime stories. And Paul really wants the truth to really 
take hold of the Ephesians. And so he prays. The only way to really grasp this is for more and more revelation from God. The same is true for us. Maybe you know this all really well. Maybe you haven't heard it before. So this is good. You're hearing it for the first time. But maybe you're like the Ephesians and some of these words, yes, they're true, but mm, they've lost some of their power and their meaning. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to pray now. We're not going to get hold of this because I'm going to explain it in a slightly different way. We're going to get hold of it because God reveals it to us. So let's pray together. Father God, I pray, uh, using the words of Paul, that our hearts will be flooded with light by your Spirit so that we can understand who we are, who you are, and the confident hope that you have given us. And Lord, where the meaning of these words has become familiar and start to lose their power, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring them back to life. Amen. So, in terms of what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a brief overview of the passage, just to get a sense of what it is, that the sweep of what Paul is trying to say. But then I'm really going to focus in on this idea of being alive, alive in Christ, what that means and how we might grab hold of it and how different things will be when we do. So the passage then, verses 1 to 3, it starts by saying, you were dead in your transgressions. And sins. And this isn't physical death that Paul is describing, it's spiritual death. Paul is saying, at one time, you were so submerged in the waters of sin, so surrounded that there's no chance of spiritual life. It's actually a bit easier if you think of it like a spiritual realm, it's a spiritual reality of death and sin, where the principal power, verse 2, at work is Satan, and where you follow the ways of the world. Those are the principal powers at work in this realm. No one is obedient to God as they should be. And in this realm, the good things that were given to us by God, the good needs that we have as human beings, are distorted. They become cravings that we obey. And this whole realm, just at the end of verse 3, is described as being deserving, utterly deserving of the wrath of God. So there's this spiritual reality here that's described, disobedient to God. And though we know that God loves all people, that all people are created in the image of God, yet we're told there's this realm that rejects his love and his right to be in charge. And then from verse 4, Paul describes a second spirituality brought about by the coming of Christ. So if you imagine very simply, this is one spiritual realm that he's described in verses 1 to 3. The coming of Christ signals a second spiritual realm. And in verse 4, he starts to tell us about this. 
crucially, it starts with, but because of his great love for us, this second spiritual realm exists because God loves us. And he is rich in mercy. Verse 5, he loves all of us, no matter what spiritual realm we might be in. It says, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. We were still submerged in the waters of sin when he came for us. That should remind us of the famous verse in Romans 5 where it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's this amazing phrase, it is by grace that you have been saved. This is God's initiative. Paul is really hammering this home. It is God's initiative. It's nothing that we've done. It's because of his amazing grace that life has become available to us. And then in verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That's mind-bending, really isn't it? Jesus' death was a physical death. And when he was raised, he was physically raised. And what Paul is saying is that in that moment in time, we also were raised, but spiritually. In that moment, a spiritual eternity for believers was achieved and made available where it hadn't been before. And the reason why he did this was in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace to everyone. This is God's way of shouting from the rooftops for eternity, I love you, I love you all. So the final section of the passage is um, like a mini conclusion, really. Verse 8, we are reminded that it is by grace we have been saved. It's a gift from God, and we're not allowed to boast about it. We can boast about God, but we can't boast about the fact that we've earned this gift. And verse 10, it says that we are God's handiwork. And when we talk about what happens at baptism, sometimes we talk about becoming a new creation. It's interesting that Keith mentioned being born again. That's the sort of image here. In the Garden of Eden, it was by his handiwork that God created Adam. But he breathed his life into his body in order for him to come alive. And in this new creation, God breathes his Holy Spirit into us as we're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And the very last thing just to mention is that we are made for good works. This is a bit confusing because Paul's taking great pains to say, it's nothing you've done, it's nothing you've done, you've not earned this. But works are important. John Stott wrote this, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, but as its consequences and evidence. Or simpler still, one commentator writes, we do nothing to gain our salvation and life with God, but such a joining to God does everything to us. So just to quickly 
summarise. Paul is saying in this passage, you were dead once, but now you are alive in Christ. And this is because of God's great love. It's a gift. It's not because of anything you've done. But what you do matters. You've been saved for good works. We are alive. Yes, it's true. It's hard to grasp, but it's true. We are alive. The Ephesians were beginning to lose this, to lose their distinctive identity. Imagine with me that you are fanatical about football. Some of you might have to imagine harder than others. (laughs) Imagine you just love football. You are terrible at it, but you love watching it. You're always watching Match of the Day and following whoever. I'm not not a football fan. (laughs) And one day, the unimaginable happens. You get invited to join the best football team in the world. And you're like, really? You're a bit confused. I'm I'm not actually any good at football. Why would they? They must have made a mistake. So you get in touch and you say, I don't think you really mean me. And you get this reply that's quite adamant. No, you're invited. You're invited to join our team. Oh, what an honor. And it comes to the day of your first match. And you really want to make the coach proud. And you run out onto the pitch through the tunnel. You can hear the crowd roaring. But people you find are looking at you a bit oddly. People on your own team, that is. They look a bit confused. You sidle up to one of your teammates and you say, what's wrong? And the teammate kindly but firmly says, mate, you're wearing the other team's kit. You're wearing the other team's kit. You're wearing the wrong colours. And that's an illustration of what Paul is trying to do here. He's saying, you're on God's team now. You've received this incredible free gift of life. Don't live as if that's not true. Don't wear the wrong kit. Don't live according to the old spiritual realm. Your life should look like this. Not this. In Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul writes, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you've been baptized, in other words, raised up out of the spiritual grave, it's like you've completely changed your clothes. You're wearing Christ's colors now. We're on the team. So let's wear the kit. That's what he's saying. I think it's quite hard. I think that's a reality for many of us. We, we know we're alive, but at the same time that we sort of slip back into old ways of living. That's quite natural, I think. And there's something, I think, really important about getting hold of this fact that we are alive and to see what change might come about because of that. So why is it important? Um, Just to go back to verses 6 and 7 of the the passage, it says, you know, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. So our life is supposed to demonstrate and be a kind of exhibition of the amazing love of God. So if we don't live as though we're alive, we deny God of the glory that he deserves, all the glory that he deserves for his kindness. And our life spreads the good news to the world. So if we don't live as though we're alive, we deny the world of the life that's on offer to them. Howard Thurman was an African-American theologian and civil rights leader. And amongst other things, he was one of the mentors for Martin Luther King Jr. Here's a quote from one of his students. That's him. Once, when I was seeking the advice of Howard Thurman and talking to him at length about what needed to be done in the world, he interrupted me and said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Amen. What the world needs is people who have come alive. But it's all very well talking in abstract, isn't it? What, what, what does that look like? And what difference does that make to us? It was difficult to think, I mean, it was difficult to think of examples because there are so many. So I've chosen some, but there are more um, that you can probably go away and, and come up with yourself. Here are a few. People who are alive in Christ don't beat themselves up. They receive grace. Um, I, at OUP, I work for Oxford University Press and I have, they've got a mentorship program and I'm being mentored by a really lovely lady and my session with her recently, she stopped me mid-track and she said, you've got a very harsh voice in your mind, haven't you, Lois? I'd said something like, my aim for this meeting is not to make a fool of myself. I said something like that. She said, Fool, that's quite a strong word, isn't it? And it, I realized, I mean, I realized something. That voice is there, that kind of your rubbish. You're going to make a fool of yourself. You probably shouldn't say anything. That voice is there. That's a dead voice. We're alive. On this front, some of you might be similar to me and I spend more time feeling guilty about the fact that I haven't prayed or spent time with God than I do enjoying the loving embrace of my heavenly father. Jesus died on the cross so that we could share the love of God forever, not so that we could feel bad all the time. Guilt is a power from the old way of living and we aren't dead, we're alive so we don't beat ourselves up. We receive grace. People who are alive in Christ aren't slaves to their cravings. The spirit enables them to live with self-control. In the old way of living, good things are distorted. Normal needs become amplified and have crucial significance for us. We need more money. We need a bigger house. 
We need the perfect relationship. We need, we need, we need. If only we had this, then we'd be happy. And the Holy Spirit of life within us can wake us up from this. When they start to have power, the Spirit is the one that convicts us and empowers us to live with self-control. And more than that, he fixes our eyes on something so much better. C.S. Lewis wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Holy Spirit gives us life and focuses us on far greater things. People who are alive in Christ don't cower in battle. They share Christ's victory. (laughs) This is something about getting to grips with the authority we have. And I'd like to just give an example from my own life. So probably about six months ago, I had a period of time when I was experiencing spiritual attack. I was having really disturbing dreams. I was struggling to sleep and I was really troubled in my spirit and it went on for a number of weeks and it got to this point where I was just at the end of my tether and I was um, on my knees crying um, and praying and I thought someone needs to help me and fortunately for me I live round the corner from a lovely couple called Keith and Eileen Elmet. And I, I rang Eileen and I said, can I come round for a cup of tea? And she said, yes, that's fine. And they listened to me and they prayed with me. And then Keith said this, you know, Lois, I think you've probably suffered unnecessarily here. I don't think this will happen to you again. When you experience spiritual attack in the future, you shouldn't pray in despair or fear You stand up. The Bible says we have the full armor of God. There's a shield of faith that we can take to quench the fiery arrows of the evil one. So you need to say, Lord, you say that I have the victory in you over all powers of the enemy. So I take up my shield of faith and I stand against the enemy. Amen. And I went home and I did it. And that night, I slept like a baby. And it's changed the way I've prayed ever since. And it hasn't happened again. We don't need to fear the enemy who is dead. We are alive. And that example leads to my uh, next point, which is people who are alive in Christ can't stay alive alone. We stay alive in the family of God. Our aliveness finds its best expression together in family. It's really important that we encourage each other, just as Keith and Eileen did encourage me. We don't know it all. And I just imagine what it might be like if, if as a church, we bring, we're all alive, we bring our aliveness to our gatherings together And we leave more alive than we were when we came. 
And think how stunning it would be if we grabbed hold of some of that. This is a tricky one. People who are alive in Christ aren't impressed by the trivial. They are captivated by Jesus. I'm saying this in full awareness. I have not in any way won this battle. Um, I've started to notice that the more time I spend swept up in the trivial, the harder it is for me to transition to worship. Um, it's, a tr- it's tricky to give examples because it will be different for different people. And I, I suppose by trivial, I mean things that are unhelpful that waste our time. There are some really good things that waste our time. Um, for me, it's probably something to do with watching shows that aren't, I shouldn't watch, probably. And um, more embarrassingly, reading about the relationships of celebrities that I probably shouldn't admire. Um, I spend too much time doing that. There's a deadening that can happen with that. Uh, It just takes longer for us to, you know, we get satisfied. It's like eating fast food, isn't it? We think, oh, I'd really fancy a a cheeseburger. And then you eat it and you're like, I wish I hadn't done that. (laughs) We do that a lot. (laughs) Actually, there's this amazing feast that's available to us in Jesus. People who are alive in Christ don't work themselves into the ground. They rest. Um, The first thing human beings did when they were created by God was rest. We were created on day six. We rested on day seven. And then we worked. The only one who works and then rests is God. I think we can just work and work and work and work and work. And then when we're like, oh, do you know what? I'm really, really tired. I'm going to, I'll probably have a holiday. I'll, I'll have a rest. But then you get ill. Does that happen to anyone else? That happens to me. And then when you're just finally better, you're like, okay, back to work. That's not the way, that's not the life that God has for us. We rest and get built up in God in order that we might work in his strength and with his sense of calling and purpose. And we don't work to beat everyone else to a top spot either. We're not dead. We're alive. Last one then. People who are alive in Christ don't do what they are supposed to do. They do what they were made to do. Um, You can probably... Think of a teacher that you had at school or at university who really inspired you and brought the subject to life for you. If we are people who are alive, we will communicate life to others. And some of us, I believe, need to give ourselves permission to pursue the God-given passions that have been put within us. I think especially if those things don't seem to be useful or constructive. Because you're not going to struggle to do things that are useful and enjoyable. It's where you think, I should do something better with my time than get my paints out or write a poem. If it's a passion that God has given you, you need to pursue it because it brings you alive 
You might know this quote from Eric Liddell, the Scottish Olympic gold medalist. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. We need to be doing things where we feel the pleasure of God. And do, do we even know what those things are? Do we know what feeds us? Do we know what we love doing? What brings us alive? In relation to church life, I might get myself into trouble now. Uh, there's a sense for me today to use another football image. I don't know what's going on with these football images, where they're all coming from, but anyway. There's someone or some people who are stuck in goal, but they've got a striker's heart. Okay? They're in a defensive position in church life, but they need to be a striker. Um, in many ways, you're doing what you're supposed to do and what seems really helpful, but it's not what you're made to do. And we want to release that because the church needs you to be alive. So if that's you, pray and talk to somebody because that's what, that's what we need. We need you to be a striker. So just imagine what it would be like if we absorbed some of the truth of these things. I was inspired recently by something I read by Robin Gamble in his book, Behold the Man. It's a book about who Jesus is and what he's like. And in one section, he writes about Jesus as a life affirmer. He reflects that to outsiders and to people who are interested in learning more about the Christian faith, we seem to focus on what our lives shouldn't be, what, they, what we shouldn't do, and what we should give up. And he says this, what would it look like if instead of cutting things out, we encouraged converts to put more in, to live bigger, laugh more, have serious bouts of holy raucousness, and attend late night gatherings of combined prayer and partying? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But what would it be like to live bigger, to laugh more? This, the quote reminded me of something that happened to me a number of years ago. I think by accident, I'd been invited to join the prophetic prayer ministry team for Transform, which is our summer camp. I really did not know what I was doing. I can't, I'm not being humble. I did not know what I was doing. And uh, we were all called to the front, this huge tent, you know, thousands of people, and kept called to the front. And then they said, right, if you want to hear a word from the Lord, there are people here, come to the front. And I was like, oh, no, I need to hear a word from the Lord. And I thought, and anyway, this absolutely beautiful woman, young woman, this vision came up to me and said, I've just become a Christian and I've never heard from God. So can I hear from God? And I thought, ah, oh no, God's probably not going to say anything. And then this young fledgling faith is going to die. Why God? <laughs> Shame on me, but I'm just being honest. Anyway, also then as I prayed, I had this picture of her just dancing and I thought, no, Lord, that's not good enough. But there she was just in my mind, just dancing. I went, oh, okay. 
I said, I don't suppose you are a dancer, are you? And she went, oh, I love to dance. And I said, why did you say it like that? And she went, oh, well, I've just become a Christian, haven't I? And I was like, what, what difference does that make? And she said, well, me and my friends, you see, we used to go out clubbing all the time. And when I became a Christian, I realized that there were aspects of that life that weren't compatible with Christian living. And I said, well, but dancing, well, dancing's okay, isn't it? And there's this, you know, dawning on her face. And I realized there, there was this moment where, for her, dancing had become somehow bound up in something that was unhelpful for her. But that joy that she felt in going out and just dancing through the night was utterly lost. It was like she'd just become a grown-up all of a sudden. And I said, well, God wants to reclaim dancing. He loves it when you dance. And this, her face, it was amazing. She, in fact, she just ran off. She said, I'm going to go tell my friends, and ran <laughs> off. But how sad is that? And how amazing, because what God said there, there's all sorts of things he could have said to her on her first prophetic moment. He could have called her to this, that, and the other. And no, he was like, I love it when you dance. You, you really should keep hold of the dancing stuff. What does that tell us about God? We can throw out as childish things that are crucial to God, crucial to living life to the full for God. What Are there things like that for you? I know that life isn't always easy and there is a seriousness to some of the things that we're called to stand for in church life. But I'm not talking about those things today. I hold a personal conviction that we should have a lot more fun. <laughs> we need to have a lot more fun. What would it look like to live bigger, to laugh more, to live as though we are alive? And what would happen if the world saw it? What would they say about us then? It would be tempting, I think, when I was preparing, my, the first thing I did was um, I made a list of questions, you know, things for us to go away and think about as a response. And when I was checking it with Chris, he said, it seems a bit strange, doesn't it, when you're talking about coming alive, that your response is to make a list of questions so that people can go away and make a plan. Actually, he helpfully reminded me, all of this, life, everything, comes from the Holy Spirit. So if the uh, band could come back up, we're going to pray uh, in the Holy Spirit and pray with authority, the authority we've been given as people who are alive. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, Father God, you are the God who raises dead things back to life. You are the God who takes something that was physically or spiritually dead and breathes life into it. Father God, you, by your spirit, are the one who brings revelation of what that life means. We call upon you now, Holy Spirit, to reveal your life to us. Would you reveal it in our minds? Would you reveal it in our hearts? Would you bring supernatural revelation? We can't make ourselves believe it, God. Only you can bring conviction and revelation. We call upon you. Lord, would you release something that is already true in the heavenly realms? Holy Spirit, I release life. I release joy. I release freedom in the name of Jesus. And I cast out guilt. And I cast out fear. And I cast out shame. Lord, we cast out that other spiritual realm. We're not there anymore. We're in the new spiritual realm. Lord, where that has any hold over us whatsoever, any hold in our church life, any hold in our leaders, any hold anywhere, Lord, we cast it out in the name of Jesus. We say we don't want death, we want life. We don't want sin, we want freedom. We don't want guilt, we want grace. Lord, would you release your God-given passions where people are living in guilt that their lives aren't useful or productive. Lord, would you free them in the name of Jesus. Instead, Holy Spirit, we pray for beauty to rise up amongst us. And we pray, just in the example of that young woman, we pray no more would any young believers hold on to that lie that they can't have fun anymore that they're grown ups now (laughs) we release joy we pray that for old believers too who have been weighed down by all the things they need to do all the responsibilities they carry all the seriousness that they need to steward and pray into I pray for a release of joy for them too that new life would come. And in all of that, Lord, for the purpose of communicating you, we pray that your glory would be revealed, that your world would see Christians as they were always made to be, living life to the full. I thank you, Lord, that there is always time. In fact, there's sort of no such thing as time that you are the author of everything. Where we're busy, Lord, bring rest. And as we ask that question, what would it look like? We don't want to just imagine what it would look like. Make it happen, Lord. What would it look like if we grasped how alive we are as a church community? 
We want that, Lord. We claim it by your Spirit. We claim that life.